Hello, my name's Joel Dunning and welcome to CTSnet Beat, the weekly podcast that keeps you up to date with everything going on in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. This week in the Beat episode, I'm going to have a focus on ECMO. We're going to talk about cardiac surgery numbers in the USA in the context of COVID. And I'm going to share with you two of my favourite videos and jans items of this week. And then as a little bonus, I'm going to throw in every now and again, I'm going to talk to you about celebrities having heart surgery. So keep tuned and we'll get started. So the first thing that caught my eye was an excellent presentation by Jeffrey Jacobs uh, from the University of Florida in Gainesville during the STS virtual meeting. It was titled, What Does Survival Look Like After ECMO for COVID-19? This is really interesting because we hear a huge amount about uh, patients undergoing ECMO. We all wonder who's going to do well, who's not going to do well. Uh, and, And obviously for these very young people, Uh, We really want to do everything we possibly can, but how is it going? So this is a really good uh, database. Uh, This was a consecutive series of 189 patients from 20 institutions, uh, and uh, Dr. Jacobs gave us a report of their outcomes. So out of the 189 patients, 98 unfortunately died uh, either on ECMO or after within 24 hours of decannulation. Um, 12 have uh, survived their ECMO run but died more than a day after uh, after decannulation and 9 are alive remaining in hospital. That gave 70 patients that survived uh, out of 189, which I think is pretty good uh, and certainly correlates with the findings here in the UK. Um, the most important thing is really to try and work out uh, who are the ones that are going to do well. Um, The correlation showed that the younger you were, the better uh, you got on. Uh, In the survivor group, the average age was was a very young 46 versus 53 uh, in the non-survivor group. Um, uh, There was a slight trend towards women doing better and obviously having less chronic conditions helped. The thing for me that I thought was quite important in this was that actually you did better if you got on ECMO quicker. So... Um, If your time to intubation to then getting on ECMO was only five days, you did a lot better than if you did, uh, if you were, uh, if it was eight days in the non-survivor group. I've been talking to the ECMO people in the UK uh, from from Glenfield, from Withenshaw, Papworth, and and they echo this very much. Our database findings are that around about 30 to 40 percent final survivorship, but the strong message really is... If they go down quick, they'll get better quick. If you've been trickling down, you've had a couple of weeks ventilated or, or a long, prolonged course on, and, and gen- slowly going down, that they aren't going to do well. And uh, and I think it probably is that sort of permanent fibrotic change in the lung uh, that, that maybe is the problem. Um, so that was really interesting of note. Uh, in the USA also, some people have gone on to have lung transplant uh, being stuck on ECMO. That hasn't happened in the UK yet. I hear it's happened in Norway. And that will again be an, a very interesting piece uh, to this difficult jigsaw as we move into uh, the second year of having COVID. Just staying on the issue of ECMO, um, a very interesting article uh, came across my uh, notice 
uh, and it was a randomized trial of using ECMO in patients with out-of-hospital arrest. Uh, this was published in The Lancet right at the end of 2020 and, uh, and it's called The Arrest Trial. Um, I just first of all just stared at this going, my god, what a difficult study to create. Imagine taking people uh, that, are, that are having an out-of-hospital arrest and trying to randomize these to ECMO versus not. Well, the authors uh, have a very good uh, uh, ECMO uh, setup. Uh, it's based in the University of Minnesota Medical Center where they get a, a head-up phone call. Uh, they're going to be the patients are being taken direct to the cath lab, and the ECMO circuits are all there in the cath lab with expert cardiologists who have great wire skills and who can get femoral arterial and venous cannulation quickly. Uh, so, what did they do? Well, this study was for patients aged 18 to 75. Uh, you have got to have had three failed shocks for VF and still be in VF. Uh, you've got to have got to the hospital in less than 30 minutes from your arrest. Uh, and then they were randomized as they got into that cath lab. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, there was a derogation, so you didn't need to have uh, consent prospectively, obviously, because that would not have worked, although they were then asked for consent to participate if they survived for their follow-up. Um, and what were the results? Well, the results were phenomenal. Uh, there were 36 patients, so this is small study, 15 in each group, uh, and, uh, and the, the results were that if you did not go on ECMO, only one person survived uh, in the uh, in the conservative treatment, they were allowed to have as many subsequent shocks, uh, but uh, there were some then stopping point based on blood gases and futility. But in the ECMO group, um, an amazing 6 out of 14 survived, which is 43% of that group. So 7% survived if you didn't have ECMO, 43% survived in the ECMO group, which is a huge difference. Now, this is a very small study, but the interesting thing is that, uh, that the Data Safety Monitoring Committee stopped the study because the differences were so big, um, which really is showing very strongly that there is going to be a big benefit with ECMO in patients uh, arresting coming to hospitals. So I think it's great news. It's really interesting. It's a massive logistical task of how to sort this out uh, across the world and, and even in very first world countries, but, but I think we're going to you know, really transform the success uh, of cardiac arrest management for people near hospital who can go straight to cath labs. Just sticking on the issue of, uh, of, uh, of COVID and, uh, and extended care, uh, Tom Wynn uh, presented to the STS a very interesting analysis uh, of two major databases from the University uh, UCSF. Um, there are 717,000 adult cardiac surgery patients in his database and he was looking at the effect of COVID-19 on numbers uh, and overall he, he reported a 53% decrease in adult heart surgery uh, in his area uh, with a 40% decline in non-elective surgery and stunning 65% drop in elective heart surgeries. Um, actually this uh, database uh, is multi-regional um, and he could actually look at lots of different regions to see where is best and where is worst. He found that the New York area is having a 71% drop uh, and, 
and, uh, and, and there are several other regions that are very severely uh, hit. Now, uh, the database can't tell you exactly why, but I think it's all obvious, isn't it? Uh, less uh, space, less ICU beds, uh, all that is, is really severely hitting uh, our daily workload. And the big question really is, will these patients come back? Are these patients who are having their heart surgery deferred or delayed? Or are they finding other pathways? Or are they simply not going to make it to an operation next year or the year after? I think that's something uh, we're not going to know for a long time. But, but it is going to tax us all uh, in the coming months and even years uh, as we get over this pandemic. Anyway, moving away from that, uh, two things uh, that caught my eye on CTSnet. Uh, the first one was an absolutely fantastic video uh, from Anthony Pitsis uh, in Greece. Uh, this was a totally endoscopic transaortic septal myectomy uh, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I've got a question for you. If you were referred an 81-year-old woman uh, with class 3 shortness of breath and an LV outflow tract gradient of 132 millimeters, uh, is your first response. Let's take them to straight to theatre. Um, well, that was the response of this team, but they did it absolutely beautifully. Uh, this was without a stenotomy. This was a three centimeter second intercostal space uh, working port with a 10 millimeter camera. And the 10 millimeter camera was a 3D uh, endoscope, but it was a 3D screen where you didn't have to wear, wear um, the dark glasses. So, and, uh, and they did a beautiful job. The really interesting things in this video also were that they had a really great mesh that could uh, expand uh, in the aortic valve to protect it from the scalpel blade uh, as they were doing the myectomy. Uh, and then the second very clever thing they did is they did a line of pledgeted sutures on the outflow tract and they used this as a retraction to pull uh, that hypertrophic muscle into view uh, where they could then make their incisions. An absolutely beautiful operation uh, and, uh, and a phenomenal job. Well done. Uh, they only had a 90-minute cross-clamp time and, uh, and a great job. And the post-operative uh, gradient was 11 millimetres of mercury. Great job. Well done. Uh, definitely worth a view. Then something that caught me in Jans, uh, which I thought was really interesting, was the early results of robotically assisted congenital cardiac surgery. Um, you hear a huge amount about uh, robotic adult cardiac surgery, and obviously uh, robotic thoracic surgery is, is, is raging on, but I haven't heard much about congenital surgery, and this is a really uh, good series um, on 242 patients uh, having uh, cardiac surgery in a wide range of, uh, of procedures. So seven years, um, and uh, what did they do? Uh, so it, this is from Istanbul as well, and, uh, and they did... Uh, the interesting thing as well is that these average age was 16 years old, so I suppose some of you could argue, well, those aren't kids, you know, they're young adults. The age range was 12 to 17 years old, but it's the wide range of operations that it's suitable that really stuck out for me. So a lot of uh, secundum ASDs, obviously, sinus venosus ASDs, obviously it's perfect for, for ASD repair. Uh, but 10% of this series were partially anomalous pulmonary venous drainage connections um, and, uh, and canal defects, so partial atrioventricular canal defects uh, and, 
and, and also there were some core triatriums, uh, some subvalvular aortic stenosis, a common atrium and a double chambered right ventricle uh, all using the uh, da Vinci system. Uh, the, their, their outcomes were really good. Uh, they had no deaths whatsoever. Uh, they had an average length of stay of three days, which uh, my eyes just pop out with that. But uh, I suppose when you're operating on young people, they do bounce back amazingly well. Uh, and uh, obviously, we all love to see uh, what unexpected events happened. Uh, they did have some, just like any robotic surgeons do. Uh, so they had an aortic laceration after declamping, an aortic puncture site bleeding from the uh, pleasure, uh, a laceration of some pleura, a laceration of the SVC um, and an injury to the left atrial appendage. Uh, they they converted for all the aortic injuries uh, and they did one emergency stenotomy, which out of 242 patients isn't bad at all, really. So very interesting uh, and uh, very interesting to see congenital surgeons really um, stepping up uh, to use modern robotic surgery, which I'm sure will be the future. So for my little... Um, new section that I'm just going to put in every now and again. Um, I can't resist just looking every now and again to see celebrities having heart surgery. And I guess uh, there's no bigger celebrity who've had no more numbers of operations than Arnie Schwarzenegger. I'm sure you all know that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a had a uh, Ross procedure in 1997 at the University of South California. And, uh, and that lasted 21 years before he needed to have anything else. So in 2018, he went to the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, uh, and uh, they are actually planning to do a transcatheter uh, pulmonary valve replacement, because it was the pulmonary position that had failed. Um, but, uh, but in the operation, as he puts it, he woke up with a slightly bigger incision than he was expecting. The, the uh, transcatheter valve didn't work, so they, they replaced his pulmonary valve uh, using a median stenotomy. But 12 weeks ago, uh, Arnie's had a third procedure. He's taken himself to the Cleveland Clinic uh, and uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, he had a TAVI. Um, it hasn't exactly been released that he's had a TAVI, but he was uh, filmed walking around uh, Cleveland just a few days after surgery. So he's joined Mick Jagger in the series of famous people who've had a TAVI and I'm sure that'll make him last another 15-20 years. As he said, he He's back. Um, last week, Sylvia Berlusconi went back into hospital. Uh, Sylvia Berlusconi is 84, and uh, he had an aortic valve replacement in 2016 at the Monaco Heart Centre under Vincent Dorr. Um, if none of you have visited the Monaco Heart Centre, it is probably the most beautiful uh, heart surgery centre you will ever see. It overlooks the Monte Carlo Harbour, where all the gin palaces are moored up, and it's actually on the road where the Formula One Grand Prix go, go past. So, so we can all have a fight about where the, the best heart surgeons in the world are, but certainly the most beautiful heart surgery unit in the world is without doubt uh, the Monaco Heart Surgery Unit. And finally, in uh, celebrities having heart surgery, Henrik Lundqvist. He's a professional ice hockey player, played 15 seasons with the New York Rangers. He's only 38, and he's gone to the Cleveland Clinic, and he had an aortic valve replacement, an aortic root and ascending aortic replacement, uh, and uh, has gone very well indeed. He was, uh, he was 
seen on Twitter showing off pictures just on day three uh, of his daughter doing pictures of his surgery. So well done all those centres and, uh, and it's nice to keep up with these people because often patients come to you saying, asking uh, about these famous people. Another thing just caught my eye uh, in the uh, news sections is uh, Asia's longest living heart transplant survivor, uh, Lee Siu Ying, uh, has celebrated 30 years uh, after a heart transplant. Uh, apparently the world record is 33 years um, and uh, so she's just three years away from becoming the world's longest survivor. A bit of good news there uh, from Asia. Well done then. So that's all for this week. Um, just as a little tip for you, keep an eye on our weekly Pulse email, which gives you the very best news every week straight into your email box, and also our weekly Jans email that tells you about the best papers uh, that uh, we think are out there. Um, also, uh, if you're videoing your operations, uh, please turn your video cameras on and send us some interesting videos of your operations. If you don't have time to edit them, I can pay you up with people who can edit them for you. That would be really interesting. And then also, more and more of us are doing Zoom teaching or doing conferences or sessions online. So click the record button and why don't you send that to CTSnet. If it's been particularly interesting or a hot topic, just record it and send it to us and we'll share it with the world uh, and they can benefit from your fantastic teaching programs. So that's all, so uh, keep tuned for our weekly podcast and thanks for listening. My name's been Joel Dunning at CTSnet. It's been a pleasure to host this uh, podcast today. <laughs>